0: I want to talk about something. We've now finished our series on James. We'll be starting a new series at the beginning of March. Just after We've got Family Zone right at the beginning of March, and then we're starting a new series. We're going to go right back to the beginning, back to Genesis, and we're going to start looking at the stories of, uh, of Genesis, the stories of relationship between man and God and man with man as well in light of that. I'm going to go right back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Not so much on creation, I'll explain a bit more nearer the time, but it's, it's the relationships we're going to be focusing on. So we're going to start that early March. But in the meantime, this month, including John next week, is kind of a series of one shots. It just felt it's time just to push the pause button, not press on straight into another program, another series, but just to do some one offs on topics that we feel God's put on our heart that we feel just really important. And there's one I want to speak on this morning, but obviously David had the heads up on the subject anyway, but those songs really helped feed, help lay the ground and turn over the soil ready for this. So I trust this would be really helpful this morning. But the reason is this, there are a lot of questions we ask in the church, particularly when we want to get together and be theological, and be deep. And uh, particularly on the internet, bloggers love it and they all argue. <laughs> and it does a disservice to the, to the church, really, when we all argue like that. We can agree to disagree sometimes. But there are questions where they get asked and actually sometimes the answer is more simple and more complicated than it appears and probably because we're asking the wrong question and actually because we're dealing with God and we're never going to fully understand but we should still try and find out more and try and learn more. For example, was Jesus sent by the Father to die on the cross or did he volunteer? The answer is yes. It's the wrong question. It's both. Did Jesus die for the world? Or did Jesus die for the elect, for the ones he's chosen? The answer is yes. We can try and get so caught up in that, and you can have people on both sides of the camp arguing all the time, you're missing the point. He's God and he understands that far better than we ever will. It's good to, un- to look into that and to look at the Bible verses that say both sides and seem to conflict, but actually they don't. They make a bigger picture that the answer is just yes. But we just need to learn more. Another one, do we have complete free will? Or is God completely sovereign? Actually, the answer is yes. And our brains go, oh, and fall out our But I can't comprehend that now. Free will and he's completely sovereign. He's completely in charge, but I'm free to do what I want. And so I'm not a puppet and I can choose, but he's in charge all along and my brain just melts. The answer is yes. Let God worry about that. Still Still study it. Still try and try to learn more about what that means to you and your everyday life and his love over you and his grace and his mercy and his justice but at the end of the day we can be asking the wrong question and there's another aspect that I want us to focus on today because sometimes those kind of questions can actually, we can go I've got a simple faith and I'm happy with that or just a childlike faith that's all I need And actually we can use that as an excuse for laziness. God wants us to search him out. God wants us to press in and know him more. And actually saying a childlike faith. Childlike faith is about the kind of faith, not the size of faith. A child jumping in his dad into his dad's arms when he's not looking and dad still catches him, that's a childlike faith that dad's gonna catch me, even though he doesn't know I'm about to jump. That's a childlike faith. That can, we can use that, we can redefine that word and use that as an excuse for immaturity and not go studying and not go searching the scriptures more to know God more. I've got a simple faith and I don't need to know all that stuff. Actually, that actually is like looking at a vast gold mine in front of you and going, it's so big, I'm not even going to bother. Start digging, you'll get wealth. You'll never get to the bottom of it, of course you won't. But the more you dig, the more treasure you'll uncover and it'll be crazy to not even bother. Does that make sense? So the question I want to ask today, is God approachable or is God unapproachable? Because the answer is yes. So <laughs> another one of those questions. God is completely unapproachable and yet we do preach every week, I trust, from here that God is approachable through Jesus. So what's going on there? What's all that about? And this is what I want us to study this morning. You see, we spend a lot of time looking at our mission our purpose here as God's people what are we here for what is our mission what is our job we talk about social reform and caring for the poor caring for the orphans caring for the widows food bank and street pastors and that we talk about that and there is a biblical mandate for it we talk about we preach about law versus grace we went through galatians didn't we What does it mean to be under the law or no longer under the law but we still want to honour God? It's all about relationship. That is important. We need to talk about that. It's valid. Talk about adoption. We are now adopted as his children. We can call him Papa Daddy. But in all that time, I would be terrified to think that in all of preaching, all those things are true, they are biblical, they are valid. But I would be terrified to think that in all of that we have lost sight of his holiness. And I think that's really, really important. You see, his holiness actually, when we start getting more of a grasp of it, we start digging into the gold mine that is so big it puts us off, but it would be foolish not to even start mining. As we dig more into understanding his holiness, it is really scary. Really scary. And yet, it's in that we find the true beauty of his love and grace over us when he did something about the chasm between him and us when we understand how vast his holiness and his purity is, we can then understand really the scope of of what he's done to save us. Is that okay? So I'm going to pray because it is scary. And then we're going to look at scripture. Lord Jesus, just now as we open your word, I will just pray that you will speak to us. We say, Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to learn more. I want to press deeper and I, I just pray, even for me as, as I'm, I've been studying this, but I want still a greater revelation of our King. And may you just reveal these scriptures, reveal these to be more than just words, but absolute truth that brings transformation in our lives, we pray. Amen. So, just briefly, there's going to be two big passages I want us to look at. First of all, we just turn, if you're able to, 1 Timothy 6 Verse 16, is just one verse. (coughs) Or just before that second half of verse 15. 1 Timothy 6, 15 into 16. There is a verse that says this. So he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light. Is this unapproachability. He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see. See, this is confusing language. I think, well, I thought we were supposed to be able to see Jesus. And people have met him on this planet. This is helping us understand the scope of his pure brilliance, his unapproachability. And this is what's on us to press into before we come back to his approachability, just to help us quite realise what's going on. See, the problem with holiness as a word is that it's quite difficult to actually really well define. The word holy, the word holiness, it has lost its edge and its keenness in our language. Language changes. I don't mind. We don't all speak like Shakespeare, do we? Thankfully. Thankfully language changes it's changing very quickly today the way the internet speak comes up and the way we text each other with three letters instead of 15 and it's language I haven't got a problem with that I love it I think it's fascinating but sometimes there is a downside when we lose sight of what certain words should really mean holy has, has lost its keenness holy mackerel Batman we've all done it holy days our holy days are no longer holy days they're just holidays now aren't they but this word holy, it's lost its edge. And ultimately, to be honest, the word holy, holiness, it's, it's actually quite a foreign word in the first place. Not, not just it came from somewhere else and outside of English. It's not just foreign to English. It's foreign to all languages. All languages struggle to translate it well. The best, certainly in our English, the best way of describing it is not just about being Pure it's about separation because of the purity it's about holiness is separation from all that is evil and all that is ordinary not it's not just is so pure even common can't even compare okay it's about the ultimate impurity it's about a burning brilliant goodness this is the ultimate which i'll explain a bit more in a sec this is holiness And that is God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Famous passage to many of us. And I've read this passage so many times. And it's amazing in its poetic picture language. And I've never really gotten to grips with it because it's all metaphor. Or it's all, did he really see it just like that? Or is it just his best way of being able to describe what he saw in everyday language? But again, this is a gold mine. And we should never look at that and go, I'm never really going to get to the bottom of it. It's amazing. Moving on. Let's start digging. Let's start digging. Isaiah chapter 6, and the first, this first five verses, first six verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, which is nearly 3,000 years ago, this is 739 BC, King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Sitting upon a throne. Who'd like to see that? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. It's a lot of cloth. <laughs> it's not cloth. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, special types of angels. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. the Lord of hosts woe is me he said let's I could spend a whole sermon just on this but there's a few just little details I'd like to pick out just to help broaden this picture and help us realise quite how powerful this picture is first of all there's two types of Lord have you noticed the difference between the way Lord is written there's two types of ways it's written has anyone spotted it yet have another look verse 1 I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne how's it spelt Small letters, capital L, lowercase after that. Verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. How is it spelled? All in capitals. This is two different words in the original language. Lord, as we normally spell it, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is his title, the Lord. Whenever you see in your Bible, Lord, in capital letters, entirely, L-O-R-D, all uppercase, it's referring to his name. It's interpreting the word Yahweh, which is the tetragrammaton it's called. It's four letters in the original language, Y-H-W-H. We put vowels in it to make it possible for our English tongues to get around it. We spell it Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. It's Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton it's called. And when that, when that is translated in here, it is L-O-R-D, all capital letters. There is his name. So what we are getting there. I've got a funky little fact about that Yahweh. Ask me later. I'm not going to digress now, but ask me later. But what we are seeing here is seeing his title in one verse, Lord, normal spelling, so to speak, and we are seeing his majestic name Yahweh in another spelling. What we are getting there actually is his approachability and his unapproachability. We're getting his title and his name all in the same passage. You can have the Queen. You can have Elizabeth Windsor. We can have Queen Elizabeth. There's his title and his name all wrapped up in one. The fact that an unapproachable God even bothers to reveal his name to us, I think, is enough. That's <laughs> incredible. So there's that. But then in amongst all that, there's the seraphim. What are these creatures? They are angels and their job is to guard the throne room, to guard the throne, to guard his holiness. Their their name means the burning ones. These things in themselves, if we ever saw one, we'd be like, oh, my life. And yet they guard his holiness, which is something else entirely. Think about this. They are untainted by sin. They are, in that respect, sinless. And yet even they cannot gaze open-faced on his glory. Does that tell you something about his glory, about his holiness? They have to have wings over their faces and over their feet in utter humility because of the immensity of his glory. I think that in itself is amazing. No wonder Isaiah said, woe is me. These pure, in that respect... One level of pure angels have to bow in utter humility when, when you see in context his purity is a whole other dimension. And then, what do they say to each other? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, is Yahweh of hosts. See, we can sing that hymn: Holy, holy, holy. We can actually we sing it reverentially. I'm not questioning our hearts, but it's kind of a bit of a bland reverence. Holy, holy, holy. We're, We're singing those words. We're not really kind of getting what that phrase means. That is more than just the same word repeated three times. There is a reason for that. It only appears one more time in the Bible in Revelation chapter four. Holy, 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 repeated three times, and it's a Jewish device, a language device, to explain the supremacy of something. At no point in the Bible does it say, God is love, love, love. God is just, just, just. God is merciful, merciful, merciful. But it is a device used to describe, do you really get, he's not just holy. And he's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And the only time it describes God's character In the Jewish language, using this device is about his holiness. It's the one thing the Bible really, God through his scripture, really wants to get across. Holiness. Never lose sight of this. His holiness is scary. See, for years, I've never really got holiness. I still don't, and I still won't in some respects. But I don't want to stop digging into this. Because when we truly understand his holiness, we truly understand what he's done to rescue us in an even greater context. And it drives us with greater passion to share him with others, to serve others, to help him co-labor with him in building his church, to just worship him every second of the day when we realize how holy he is. And yet, he came to save me. I don't want to be content with just a, a, a reduced image of this. I want to see more of the real thing. Does that make sense? For example, I'm a bit of a pyromaniac, in case you don't know already. I'm a born-again pyromaniac. I love fire, and I love I mean, even at a restaurant, I just can't help playing with wandering my fingers through the candle flame, can I? I just love it. I'm fascinated, when, when, I, was in, when I was in school and the physics teacher used, and the chemistry teacher used to explain about the makeup of a candle flame, and actually the middle's cold, and it's the edge that's hot, and how always Helen could explain a lot more. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I was, I was just like, that's it, I want to play with fire. Should have been a fireman, not a paramedic, shouldn't I? But I love playing with... But one little match can really hurt you, can't it? You compare that to the size of the sun. We love the sun, we love sitting out on it, we get sunburned. And actually, if you get really sunburned, later on in the day, you can feel the heat on your face, can't you? You can still feel that temperature coming off. That big ball of flame is 93 million miles away and it can still do that to you. It's huge. You can fit a million Earths inside the sun. It's massive. Let me show you a picture from Tiananmen Square in Beijing. It started floating around the internet. I don't know if we can see this very clearly. Should we pull these across? Do we have to do a thingy? I've no idea, probably. Oh, look. What's that? That's windows. Not going to do it. Oh, there are. There's some. Is that one here? Just want to make sure you can see this clearly enough. And do the lights as well. Because there'll be another picture later as well. That's a bit clearer. This is Tiananmen Square. This is now. Huge, great smog. This was floating around the internet the other day because of the Daily Mail. And don't start me on the Daily Mail. Just, Just don't read it. Maureen, this floating around the Daily Mail was was suggesting that it was so smoggy the Chinese authorities were trying to make up for it and gave them a sun on a screen. That's not true. (laughs) That's now been proved to be false. But it's it's a holiday advert. You can even see the logo of the holiday um, firm in the in the bottom corner. But what what really gets me about this is that this is how we can treat these kind of passages. We see this as this pretty picture and we we think it's quite interesting or well, we are slightly amazed by it, but ultimately, because of all the smog, we're, we're relying on a TV screen image that's nowhere near the real thing because the smog in our life, either our apathy or our busyness or our, our, our sin sometimes, it's all it just, it just blanks out the real thing. And I don't want to rely on a TV screen image of God's holiness. I want to see the real thing. A lot of these people could be quite content with that. Good morning, son, as they walk to work, not seeing the real thing. I don't, want to, I don't want to stay like that with God's holiness. I want to see the real thing. I'll show you another picture in a little while that will put it in context in a new way. Because even... The Bible warns us against idolatry. The Bible warns us against making idols, worshipping idols. Be that fame, power, sex, money, body image, relationships or a carved wooden image we've made. And we all know that. But hear this. We can end up worshipping an idol we've made of God. An image of God that is false. A God who is all about wrath and justice and judgment and no love it's a false image of god we can worship an image of god who is all lovely and fluffy around the edges and doesn't judge people that's a false image of god i don't want want to worship a false image of god i want to worship god the holy real god who is revealed through scripture i don't want to rely on a tv image of him i want to see the real thing Do you want a bit of light on again for a moment? Can you see your notes and your Bibles? Thank you, Sarah. We'll do another picture in a bit. This is why Isaiah says, woe is me. He hasn't seen a TV image. In, in some ways, it's unfortunate that these words here are a TV image to us. But through Holy Spirit, he reveals us to us and we get to see some of what Isaiah actually saw. And when he's when he, when He's When he's exposed to this vision of God, it is, woe is me, I am nothing. I'm an unclean man of unclean lips amongst the people who are unclean. What am I? He doesn't need it spelling out to him, it's quite obvious. And to say, woe is me, is to say, I am undone. Not just I'm exposed, you see me for who I am, you've revealed my sin. This is more than just exposed, this is I am unraveled. And scary as it is, I don't want to be content until I'm in that place again. And I've been there before, and I, I don't want to ever be walking indifferent to sin in my life or not pressing in enough. I want to just be fueled and enriched by a pure vision of Him in front of me all the time, which I know I'm not going to get. I'm human, but I don't want to stop pushing after that and running after that. See, Isaiah wasn't just a common man; he was of royal lineage. He had standing amongst the people. And yet in front of the living God, he's like, whoa, I am a speck. You think laboratory conditions. You think you have to clean yourself up and put a special suit on and goggles or mask, sometimes, depending on how sterile it needs to be. Our presence stains that environment, doesn't it? Or if you're a cat or a dog owner, fur gets about, doesn't it? Wherever they go, they leave their mark. They stain the environment in that respect. That is us. When we're fully exposed to the real living God, we're like I shouldn't even be here. Do you understand the the scope of his holiness? It's just immense. What we need to do is keep looking past the image, past the T V screen. I want to see I want that smoke to clear and I want to see the sun. Let's see the sun, Revelation chapter 1. I love this passage. (coughs) Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through to 20. Again, it would be familiar to many of us, but let's push through the TV screen image and see the sun. Revelation chapter 1 is the last book of the Bible, verse 9. This is John, this is Jesus' best friend. It says, I, John, it's talking to the church, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Good timing, wasn't it? And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Same as Isaiah, what does John do? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But here's his approachability. He laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one I died, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We've got an angel. Good, isn't it? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John knew Jesus... Five and a half to six foot carpenter, mason, Jesus, but also the Son of God. John knew him in that capacity. And then he sees him in his full glory, in his holiness. His eyes are on fire. I can't even comprehend that, let alone anything else. His feet are like bronze. His voice is like an ocean. Angels in his hand a sword comes out of his mouth. And yet to people, to John, he says, What does he say? Fear not. Fear not. Having a full revelation of his holiness, our immediate only option is to fall down as though we're dead or to cry out, woe is me, I am unravelled. Is this coming through all right? I it like it disappeared, it's all right. It's, and yet, he says, fear not. Look past this image, there is John, Jesus' best friend. They ate together, they sang together, they parted together, they grieved together, they man-hugged together. They journeyed together. And he sees Jesus in his full glory, falls at his feet, and Jesus goes, fear not. Why? Verse 18. He says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. Historical recorded account. It happened. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Death is separation. Eternal separation. Jesus did something about that. That eternal separation that is required because he is so holy and he is so ultimate in purity that just to be in his presence would burn us because of our sin, because of the darkness, the dark stains and the selfishness and the pride in our hearts. And yet he did something about that. There's his approachability. His approachability is not fluffy and come and sit on my lap. Although in effect we can do that with our Father God. But it's more than that. His approachability is that I strode in one stride across that chasm Mm. to rescue you. Scary God loves us so much. Father God, who we should be terrified of but now we don't have to be. And if that doesn't mean anything to you right now, come and speak to us afterwards. It's available for you. The God who should terrify, it doesn't have to be that way for you. Unapproachable God does not remain aloof. Unapproachable God extends the hand that has every right to annihilate us and plucks us up out of love and out of mercy. Only God could do that. (laughs) And he chose to because he loves us. There's the beauty of the gospel. Against the backdrop of his holiness. And I love it. Another picture to show you. One of my favourite films of recent years is called Sunshine. It's about the sun is dying... And they have to send a nuclear bomb on a spaceship to reignite the sun. Start it, it's a physical process, starts it up again to reignite it for however many more generations to come. It's brilliant. Jenny got bored of it. I love it. But there is one moment towards the end, it doesn't give the game away anything, but towards the end, there's one moment where one of the characters actually comes face to face with the surface of the sun. Where's this picture? Can you just do the lights again, please, Sarah? Thank you. It should be all right. That's a bit different to having the TV screen in Tiananmen Square, isn't it? This whole scene, the way it's been filmed and the music is just completely transcendent. It's a holy moment, in effect. And it's, it's a humanist version. There's, they're not talking about... One of the characters talks about God. As far as they're concerned, this is just the sun. But I hope this image puts the other one in context. I don't want to look at a TV screen of God. I don't want to just read pretty words and think it's really nice and poetic and it's quite interesting and and quite inspiring. I want to be face to face with the sun. Do you? (laughs) Good. It's about being up close and personal with a living God who beckons us and said it's okay, I've done it. I've done something about it. I want to be there all the time. And I don't want to let go of that. Paul the Apostle, he saw Jesus' glory and he was blinded by it. Isaiah declared he was unraveled before this glory. John fell down as though he was dead because they were up close and personal with God's holiness. I don't want to go through this life without ever really getting to grips with that. I'll, I'll see it. Either if he comes again or if I die first, I'll see it. And I'll revel in it. And I'll be safe forever. But I don't want to go through this life having wasted an opportunity to find out more while I'm here. How are they up close and personal? There's a clue. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. What was John doing at the time? Thank you, sir. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to this. It's the Holy Spirit who turns what is a passage of words and paragraphs, sentences cleverly constructed from the original language, he turns that into life. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our ears, opens our minds, opens our hearts and our eyes to see the glory of the Lord. One more scripture to turn to. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But halfway through your New Testament. Two Corinthians chapter three Verse eighteen. John was in the spirit. And that's the key. Two Corinthians three eighteen says this. And we all, we, God's people. Saved in Christ just by putting faith in what Christ has done on the cross to make recompense for your sin. Faith in him. You're one of his people. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's he who does this. And the more we gaze on him, the more we are transformed. Who wants to grow in Christ? Absolutely. Here it is. Gazing on him. Gazing on him. David asked earlier, what's what's the desire of your heart? One is that my family prosper and flourish in him together as a team. Resting in him as we labour together. But another one, that Jesus will be made famous. known by Kent, Britain and across the world. Absolutely. I don't want him to just be known about or heard of or some history character they might have been aware of or a myth as far as they're concerned. I want him to be famous for who he is. And how will that come about? It's by his glory, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it starts with this. Jesus will be made famous in Herm Bay when we are transformed increasingly into his likeness. We, his people, people will stand up and take notice. And it will be pointing the way to him, not to us. But how does that happen? The more we gaze on him. I want to press through the TV screen. and want to see the sun that's behind it. Shall we stand? We're going to sing a song that talks about the same picture that Isaiah saw. I'm going to sing, I see the Lord and he is high and lifted up and his train fills the temple. Now we can sing this song with a whole new perspective, can't we? Let's sing this song and then we'll pray to finish.